One thing every AI researcher knows, but few people outside of the community might know, is that most foundational AI research is actually happening in open source. Indeed, most AI researchers publish their research findings openly on Archive, a freely accessible, open repository originally mostly used by physics researchers. And the code underlying many AI breakthroughs is often published on GitHub, where it's readily accessible to anyone. Usually, these papers and code bases originate from the leading universities and tech companies. But the open culture in the AI community means that aspiring researchers can on their own access and study the latest AI breakthroughs and code bases, and in principle, from there, start making their own contributions. I'm saying in principle, because that's how I used to think of it. In principle possible, but likely too tall an order for anyone to make happen. Today's guest, Ross Whiteman, has shown this is actually possible. As a independent researcher, Ross has grown into one of the most prominent contributors to AI research and code bases. In a previous life, an engineer at a Canadian unicorn startup, his current full-time occupation is building new AI models that are freely available on GitHub for use by anyone and everyone. Ross, so great to have you here with us. Welcome to the show. It's amazing to be here. Before we dive into what you're doing today, let's talk a bit about the journey, how you got here. As I understand it, you actually used to be an engineer at a Canadian startup. How do you land there and then how do you become an independent AI researcher and contributor? We started a company that made uh, surveillance cameras, essentially, so IP video cameras. We built the camera from the ground up, all of the software in the back end that recorded them, uh, transmitted them over networks for reviewing and accessing recording events and etc. That startup I was with them for for nine years from pretty much day one. I was the original firmware developer and then I ended up taking over the software team as a sort of system architect and uh, tech lead there. And then, yeah, by the end I was director of software firmware and we had built a pretty amazing system. And uh, at some point, it was time to, to move on to other things. Well, first of all, I think it's really interesting because in today's world, cameras seem just so readily accessible and, you know, building your own camera system seems almost crazy. But I remember from my own PhD student days working at the Stanford helicopter project, we had to put cameras on the ground to track the helicopters. And it was, it was a big endeavor to, you know, figure out what are the right cameras, which ones have enough bandwidth, enough resolution low enough latency, and it was just a whole research project in itself to even buy the correct cameras for the problem. And it sounds like you actually went ahead and, and completely built your own cameras. Yeah, it was pretty crazy. From like the initial trial one we call version one of the cameras was we did it through uh, FPGAs. So we were writing VHDL code and like controlling the sensors uh, with logic ourselves and streaming the data through the FPGA over the network. Back then, computer vision wasn't really working yet, right, when you started doing this. So maybe the cameras were just streaming, but not really intelligently processing the data yet. Yeah, that, that is a huge change. Actually, a kind of a scary change. Back then, 
it didn't seem like such a big deal, you know, making cameras for surveillance applications. There was always humans monitoring them or after the fact, you'd go back and look at the recording. Um, the, the analytics at that stage were all pretty much hand-tuned computer vision. They didn't work very well at all. And then a few years after I left that company and I started tinkering with AI, it was like, wow, like this is incredible what you can do now. It's also very scary going back to that application specifically, what's possible. And so at this point, I very much try to avoid overlapping those two worlds. Um, I know there's still lots of people working on it, but it needs a lot of sensitivity in how you tackle the problems and how you deal with your data and what like the end use cases are. Now, why did you feel ready to leave the company and what was next for you in that moment? I feel I'm an early stage uh, company type person. I like to have my hands in everything. Things were going very well with that uh, company, but it was starting to grow into a larger company. The pace was starting to slow a little. Things were becoming a little bit more formal. And the environment was just changing to the point where I decided I'd be better off on my own or maybe starting something new. It seems like one of the things you started doing was angel investing. And the other thing is kind of just hacking on your own, plugging away at building your own AI systems. And the AI thing will be the main part of our conversation, of course. But I am curious to touch upon the angel investing part. Like, how do you get into that at the moment? And, and how's that going? It's going well. Uh, it comes in fits and spurts. Uh, after I left the company, I wanted to support other startups, especially in the Vancouver uh, ecosystem. Uh, so I joined some angel groups and started going to pitch events and talking to founders of interesting companies. And when I found a fit or an interesting idea, uh, make an angel investment. I still do that. It just, yeah, I don't often find companies that sort of are in an area that I'm interested in or doing something exciting. Uh, Vancouver's uh, definitely a much smaller startup ecosystem uh, than the Valley, San Francisco, or many other American cities or even worldwide cities. But it's been improving steadily over the over the years. Well, often having strong universities is the feeding ground or one of the big feeding grounds, as well as big tech companies where people get tired of, um, you know, working at a big company and want to do something new. So it seems like in principle, yeah. Vancouver should have it, you know, be able to have it covered. Yes, yeah, it's, it's definitely growing in, in the startup ecosystem. I'd definitely like to see more hardware uh, startups here, um, sometimes compared to the, the ambitions uh, in the States. The, the targets in Canadian startups is a little more modest uh, and tackling sort of the, the extra costs and complexities of uh, hardware products or hardware software hybrids, especially robotics, is I, I don't see too many uh, companies like, say, Covariant uh, in Vancouver. There is one in particular that I was quite excited about recently, but uh, yeah, not too many of those. Of course, robotics is always, you know, in some sense, one or two or several notches harder than something pure software based, because once you're interacting with the physical world, mistakes become more costly. You can break physical things, which tends to be harder to repair and so forth. So, I mean, I can see why there's a natural trend towards you know, pure, pure software based uh, products whenever possible, even though I personally, of course, love to put you know, real robots to work and, and get them to do things. Now. A lot of people, when they want to get into AI, they tend to join 
often either a university or a big company that has an AI research lab as part of their efforts, right? But in your case, as I understand it, you just started tinkering with it on your own. Can you say a bit more about that? How did you even start? What was your initial thing you tried to do and grow from there? After leaving the company, um, started looking for you know startup ideas. What would be next? Uh, so spent quite a bit of time brainstorming and tinkering. And a lot of the ideas and interesting things that I was seeing out there all revolved around uh, AI. So that became a focal point. I didn't actually know that much about it at the time. So I figured, well, I've got to learn and I learned by doing. So I found Kaggle and that's really how I started my journey in deep learning and AI was through Kaggle. I started entering in some challenges. They're highly addictive. So at some point I had to stop that, but I learned a lot through doing that. And that's actually how uh, Tim, the PyTorch image model library started, was collecting models for different vision-based challenges on Kaggle. Eventually, that became the thing that I started working on uh, more and more, as opposed to, to entering in the challenges. Now, I'm not sure everyone is going to be familiar with Kaggle. What is Kaggle? It's a, a data science uh, competition platform where uh, data scientists, researchers, engineers, Anybody really from around the world can compete in different uh, challenges around different uh, data science topics like vision, NLP. Different companies and organizations will come to them with a problem, uh, often a data set included and uh, a metric that they'd like to evaluate the challenge on. And then people will enter in that and come up with solutions. And there's a leaderboard through the whole challenge. And then at the end, there's a winner or a number of winners ranked on the final uh, test metric. We've often talked about the ImageNet competition where you know, there was an image recognition competition that really led to the breakthroughs in AI that we're seeing today, the realization that deep neural networks are best at the problems we're trying to solve. And effectively, Kaggle is like multiple ImageNets running in parallel at the same time with data sets being posted, competitions being run on all kinds of problems, right? And the beauty is that, I mean, there's two sides to it. One side is, what you were doing, you're solving the problems, but if somebody wants a problem solved, they can also post it on there and just see how all people do on it and see if the problem is solvable or not. Yeah, no, it's a pretty exciting platform and definitely like it's a great way to learn and get involved. Um, even if you don't rank highly, it's pretty competitive, uh, especially now there's so many people on it, but you still can learn a lot. And just going through the forums and reading the solutions to the different challenges, it's pretty educational and eye-opening how creative some of the solutions can be. Are typically the solutions published open source for the winners on Kaggle? Not always full open source. It depends on the terms of the specific challenge. But most of the winners will be more than eager to share their solutions, at least at a very high level on the forum. So if you go in after a challenge is ended, you'll typically see like solution for place number two, number three, and you can read through and see some of the block diagrams of their solution and some of how they, uh, they tackled the problem, even if they don't release the whole code. But sometimes that it is released as well on GitHub or wherever. So it's so interesting for me to learn about. So, I mean, for me, the... the the way I would start learning typically would be like go to classes online and you know listen to what's being said there and try to do some homework exercises and, and work my way through. But in your case, you're just like, okay, Kaggle is where people compete, where the best people who wanna, you know, 
test their, their, their capabilities effectively on new data sets, go and you know, try it out. And you just dove right into that, which is really intriguing to me. Yeah, that's definitely my learning style. I try to watch the videos and do as many online courses as I can, but I usually don't make it very far before I get the urge to start hacking and uh, tinkering. I've like gone through some of your lectures, Andre's like so many different resources out there, but I always come back to just getting into the code and uh, trying to make things work. Now, of course, the beauty of the code is that in some senses, the ground truth, right? I mean, a lecture has abstractions as higher level explanations, but doesn't always cover how you get it to work because it often stays at a more kind of mathematical, symbolic level. Whereas once you're busy with the code, you know that if you have it up and running, you're all set. This is real. And especially since the machine learning, there is train and test data. And the test data on Kaggle is actually, you, you don't have it available to yourself. It's run by the organizers. You actually know for real whether your system is, is doing well or not. Yeah. Now, the other thing you mentioned is that as you start participating in Kaggle competitions, you started using PyTorch. Can you say a bit about what is PyTorch and how come it plays such a big role in everything AI deep learning these days? Well, uh, PyTorch is a Python-based machine learning framework, fairly specifically focused on deep learning, but you can use it for pretty much anything. It's one of the more popular frameworks at this point in time, especially among uh, researchers who want to build things quickly, experiment, iterate fast. It's got a great community, which was what uh, drew me to it in the first place. From the ground up, it was designed to be, uh, to be I think, to be easy to use, uh, easy to experiment with. It had quite a bit less boilerplate uh, than some of the other options out there, although many of them uh, at this point are converging to a very similar interface and user experience. So PyTorch is now starting to look like many of the other options out there, or they are starting to look more like PyTorch. I still stick with PyTorch. I've been playing with actually Jax a bit too recently, and, and I've been enjoying that. It's pretty powerful and pretty fun to, to play with. Um, and I think it will be pretty useful going forward, especially if you're doing larger scale um, machine learning, deep learning on, on TPUs and many uh, distributed systems. Going one step deeper maybe, when you're working with, with PyTorch or other deep learning frameworks, what is it that you're actually doing as you try to compete in a Kaggle competition? If you're using deep learning as your approach, you're, you're looking for network architectures that uh, can perform well on, on your problem, have enough capacity, uh, but also at the same time will work within the constraints of the, the hardware that you have. Many of the Python-based libraries, especially PyTorch, make it really easy to switch out different networks, uh, change the layers, change the size of your models by scaling the amounts of uh, layers that are stacked together, the image sizes, if you're doing an image uh, challenge that you're feeding to the network. You can easily iterate through different choices of parameters that control the model um, architecture, the size of it, or the optimization parameters. So what kind of uh, optimizer you might be using, what the learning rate is, and then also additionally, the data that's being fed into um, the network, that's often the most important part. Making sure that um, you're handling the, the data well uh, inspecting the data, Python notebooks are especially useful for doing analysis of your data. And with the Python-based frameworks plus the notebooks, you can iterate through training your model, looking at your data, analyzing the results with your data in mind, and just keep 
quickly iterating and improving um, the results. Now, there you are. You're, you're playing, well, playing or working slash playing with, uh, with PyTorch, and you're competing in these Kaggle competitions. Was there some kind of ramp up? How did you see this evolve for yourself from, you know, maybe initially being not so competitive to actually doing well in these competitions? And what were some of the things maybe that in your learning process were really helpful? I just dove in there. Um, when I started, I didn't even know what a ResNet was. And uh, I think when I got into Kaggle, it wasn't that long after. I started with Torch 7, which was like the old Lua-based pre-PyTorch in my first challenges and started participating in the forums was huge, seeing what other people were doing, um, getting feedback from the community was pretty important to those early days. It always goes back to the data, which is, I, I love the modeling aspect and that's what Tim's been focused on, but really when you're doing the challenges, uh, having a good model is important, but handling your data appropriately is really the, the key. Uh, and for Kaggle especially also, Understanding the, the metric that your, your challenge is evaluated on it is really important. And some challenges are won or lost based on hacking the metric almost, which, you know, maybe not be a thing that you want to do in industry, but in Kaggle, it can get you a gold medal. Now, it's interesting because you, you start out, you know, thinking you're ready to start your next company, right? And you realize... AI is where a lot of the innovation is happening. You want to become familiar with that. You start diving into Kaggle, competing. And then at some point, something happened, right? Because right now, your deep learning models that you release on GitHub are often the standard reference, especially on Tim, the, the Torch image models repo. It's becoming the reference for anybody out there. And there you were, you're just this independent researcher doing your, your things on your own. All of a sudden, people start using your models. Was there a moment where you just saw this transition where all of a sudden you felt like you're just playing in competitions and all of a sudden people are using your work? It's amazing what has happened, but I've spent time going back trying to figure out where, if there was any aha moments and I think it was just a long, continual evolution and grind. I'm a grinder. I plug away at things until I solve the problem or I get the result that I'm looking for. So, yeah, after I decided to focus more on, on Tim, it's just been slow but steady uptick. I was looking at my um, star, the chart of the GitHub stars recently for um, a presentation that I was uh, preparing. And yeah, it's been a pretty steady ramp with a bit of a, an acceleration in the past year, especially just more and more people finding out about it. It's definitely like everybody on Kaggle these days that's doing image challenges seems to be aware of it. It's used commonly there. People have uh, captured the, some of the weights and, and models in uh, the standalone uh, notebooks that can be used in the offline challenges there. And then now researchers uh, and companies, organizations are definitely using it based on messages that I'm getting and discussion forums in the, on the GitHub repo and whatnot. There's been a couple, I think, key model architectures or papers that I've reproduced that sort of caused a little bit of a bump here and there. The Vision Transformers was a, a really big one where the Google Brain Zurich group released that paper. And then I had the, some code and the trained weights up before they managed to get their JAX version out. 
And uh, I think I had to change like two or three lines in my uh, paper-based reproduction before it, for it to match the actual official code, which was pretty neat. And then from that point, many of the, the Vision Transformer variations have been based on the TIM uh, code with the warts and all. I had a couple little mistakes in the first version that I smoothed over with a Boolean flag here or there to make it work with my original one or the official one. And that somehow managed to propagate into pretty much every Vision Transformer implementation that I've seen so far. And that's a really big deal, right? Because, I mean, if we think about AI in the last 10 years, 2012 ImageNet moment with AlexNet, convolution neural networks, specific type of neural net architecture was trained to get the best image recognition performance. And since then, essentially, convolutional neural networks, LSTMs, or recurrent neural networks for sequence modeling, were for many years the main architectures. But then a few years ago, the transformer architecture was introduced, right? Mostly in natural language processing at first, but then the vision transformer was, in some sense, the first big breakthrough of that new architecture in computer vision. And when those things happen, the devil's in the details is always my impression. I'm sure you feel the same. And when the first time something like that happens, it's very hard to reproduce. And so when you come out with a piece of code that can actually do it just from the paper, that's pretty unique in the early days of such a new you know, neural net architecture to be able to train it properly. I noticed then, I mean, you, you've been hacking away um, Kaggle competitions, then your code becomes more widely used. And then actually you start writing papers and you, ha you put a paper on archive, how to train your vision transformer. How did that come about? That came about due to actually my reproduction in uh, Tim of the vision transformer. The Google group that, that worked on that made that paper, uh, Lucas uh, reached out to me afterwards and we, we started chatting a little bit and then the diet uh, transformer models had come out around that time uh, by a Facebook group. And we were discussing like the merits and differences. And they, the Google group really wanted to uh, do some more work on training with, um, I guess, smaller data sets or open accessible data sets like uh, ImageNet 21K and show that it was easier to, or it was better to do transfer learning from more data than to try and crank up the augmentations and regularization and train just on ImageNet 1K. So they uh, involved me in that paper um, because it was very much focused on, uh, I guess, a practical application of visual, vision transformers and how to train them well. So we kind of did this hybrid. Uh, they did some of their research on their DAX implementation with their TPUs, and then I was doing uh, some of the experiments uh, on uh, GPUs in the TIM code base, and we kind of pulled it all together to make some observations about uh, augmentation and regularization in the context of uh, training your vision transformers well. Since those models are very data hungry and they benefit from either significantly larger data sets or really, really, really cranking up the augmentation of your smaller data set to, I guess, essentially make it appear as if it's larger if your augmentations are convincing and that they fit uh, the natural uh, images that you're using. Now, I'm curious because you, you're connecting with the Google team at the time. And I mean, I got to imagine at this point, 
people are also trying to recruit you, not just try to collaborate with you, but then, you know, they must, you know, at least hint at this notion of, well, maybe you could just join Google or could join, you know, any of the other companies, but you remain an independent researcher, right? What's your thinking around that? And, and you know, why is it so exciting for you? To well, I guess I'm a bit of a lone wolf. I like to wake up in the morning and be the one to decide what I'm working on. That like keeps me engaged. Um, and I, I move between so many different projects and ideas. Uh, and I really enjoy that. And I guess being in a position where I, I don't have to uh, rely on the paycheck, um, yeah, it, it just, I prefer it this way. There's definitely been conversations uh, with different companies and some of them have been intriguing. Uh, but at the end of the day, uh, signing up, it like, just hasn't made it to, uh, well, on my priority list versus what I'm doing right now, which is building what I want to do, exploring the ideas that I want to and contributing to open source. Well, it's hard yeah. to imagine having a, having a bigger impact than the way you're open sourcing your models and they're being used, I mean, by pretty much everyone in Vision <laughs> looks at your models, builds on top of them. So it's hard to imagine having a bigger impact by, you know, pushing yourself inside one specific company. But at the same time, when you're inside a company, often, you know, there are other benefits, like um, you might have bigger compute resources, which does play a role in um, AI and deep learning. And so I'm curious, what are your thoughts on that? And how do you ensure that, you know, you can always run the experiments you want to run? Yeah, that, well, that's definitely been uh, a challenge that I've run into, um, well, I run into quite regularly. As I get further into it, the experiments that I want to run start getting bigger and bigger and require more and more data, more compute, uh, especially in the past year. Um, some of the, the uh, side projects I've been working on, uh, especially related to video and some of the other uh, multimodal models, uh, I'd like to do more experiments on the sort of clip DALI style models, they require huge data sets and lots of compute. So the, the TensorFlow Research Cloud, or I guess it's TPU Research Cloud now, I'm, I'm a, a part of that and that's been super helpful uh, recently, uh, access to uh, TPUs in the cloud uh, for research purposes uh, from Google. Um, I actually spent some time on Tim adding support for PyTorch XLA almost a year ago now and it's been working pretty well for me, so I've been training many recent models on TPUs. Some conversations with GraphCore might uh, be able to get some experiments running on, on their hardware once I add some support. That's still pretty early days. We had definitely, uh, and also NVIDIA, they, uh, some Kagglers that I, I know that work in NVIDIA really pushed uh, my case and they uh, sent me a refurbished, uh, I guess, one of their demo units of a DGX station, the V100 version. So that was quite helpful as well. It's heating my garage right now. <laughs> yeah, well, winter time for you, you, you got pl plenty of heating going on then once you have some of those GPUs running full time. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm in Whistler and it's, it's already below zero. And the garage is like, it's the tropics. It's crazy. <laughs> Yeah, maybe uh, maybe you need to distribute your uh, compute cluster over other um, other houses near you, and nobody needs regular <laughs> heating anymore. I should start it. That, that should be my business. Uh, heat heat your house with uh, GPUs that are training models. I think I've seen a company actually that's uh, proposing to do some sort of furnace heater based on uh, yeah, the GPUs or some sort of accelerator. 
So you might as well, right? It seems a waste to put GPUs in data centers where you then apply cooling, whereas other people are somehow just in a you know wasteful way heating up their house with just you know burning gas or running some electrical heating without actually running compute. Um, yeah, yeah, should be interesting. Now, I think this is really intriguing. That I mean, the companies are st starting to realize in many ways, the importance of these open source contributions because they're seeing that it helps what they're doing. It helps other people get up to speed. And then they, even if they cannot hire you, <laughs> they can hire other people who know how to use your models and learn from you. And the interesting thing that I hadn't seen before until recently pointed out is that GitHub explicitly allows um, people to effectively endorse other people. And I was browsing that yesterday because I hadn't seen this before. It's possible to buy you a beer for those times when 3,000 plus GPU hours are tossed out the window due to bad hyperparameter settings. <laughs> <laughs> so next time it happens, you know, let, let me know. I'd love to buy you a beer <laughs> for, for that. Uh, yeah, yeah. For, uh, the, the, the GitHub sponsors was a pretty uh, interesting program, and I, I signed up for that uh, eventually as my costs, and especially in cloud, uh, uh, started rising, and, and it's, it's been helpful. Several organizations. Uh, have contributed. Uh, Hugging Face is a, a sponsor. Uh, PyTorch Lightning and the uh, Oldify, they, they, they've sponsored me. Yeah, and I noticed also Andre Kapathy himself, uh, director of AI yeah. at Tesla. He's, he's one of the sponsors, and that, that's pretty awesome. And I noticed one yeah, of my students actually is one of your sponsors. <laughs> Arvind Srinivas is uh, one of your sponsors. I'm like, wow, my students are sponsoring uh, Ross. This is so awesome. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. No, uh, we had some inf interesting conversations about uh, some of his uh, hybrid transformer models, the uh, like HaloNet and uh, Botnet, um, and he really liked the repository, so he decided to uh, sponsor me and contribute. Yeah, it's, it's pretty amazing, and yeah, I, I recommend everybody to check it out because uh, you you put some creativity into the different kind of sponsorships you can take on. I also really like the uh, the burger. That is fuel for late night debugging. I'm just imagining you, you know, working late at night and ordering a burger to uh, to keep it going. <laughs> now, on this topic, I mean, you mentioned it's nice. You you have no boss. You can focus on the things you want to learn, the things you want to contribute to, and you can do it all in open source because I mean, it's your work. You can put it out there for anybody to use. What does that mean in practice? What does a day in the life of Ross Whiteman look like? If I have a a really challenging project or idea that I'm working on that maybe I'm roadblocked and I just can't make it through uh, an abstraction or a detail in a model, it's not training properly, it's blowing up, I'll put it down and then go back to the, the bug list or the, the other tasks and just pick something that's maybe a little simpler, switch gears, get that done, check it off, make some progress, and then retackle the harder problems on another day or another week. I definitely know the feeling of having a, a list of things that's way too long to make progress on, on everything on, on you know one day or even one week, and the importance of you know just being happy to take one thing at a time. But I'm curious, in your case, when you take that one thing and, and you go about your day, is this a day where you're just sitting there on your own? Is there a lot of online interaction with other people? What is it like? And, you know when you're actually working on something? On the day-to-day -day basis when I'm developing, it's like me, the code, and a bunch of papers all over the screen and just kind of plugging away at it uh, until uh, 
I get hungry and it's like, okay, time to go eat something. Wow. And are, are there any, um, any things that you do to kind of, you know, mix things up? I mean, like, you know, go for runs or play a musical instrument or are, are there other things you do to, you know, maybe keep sane? Because I imagine you cannot code, you know, 16 hours a day. Yeah. Well, I mean, I've got a 19 month old toddler, so that was a big, uh, big change in life. And, uh, That's where most of my time outside of this I spend these days. Now, you put out another paper recently, actually. And I love the title, ResNet Strikes Back. How did that come about? And it, it, in my mind, it's really, you know, deep learning, the devil is in the details. And it's people like you that spend so much time on the details that come up with new insights. But how does it come about for you and what are some of the new insights in this work? Yeah, yeah that paper, uh, I think it was, it was a long time coming, actually. For people who are familiar with uh, Tim, uh, they'll know that I've trained a lot of my own uh, model weights on ImageNet over the past uh, year or two, often to better um, accuracy or better uh, performance than many of the original Uh, weights that were trained when the models were first introduced in, in their original papers. So in doing that, I was often mixing up, recombining different training ingredients, especially on the augmentation side and getting some really good results. And then I'd see like new papers with new architectures coming out and they were often comparing their new architectures with, you know, ResNets uh, is a common one, uh, but going back to the original a ResNet paper and the original accuracy numbers posted there, which were trained not using many of the techniques that are now common. And so I felt, often felt that the, the comparisons were not fair. Uh, and it's like, yeah, well, your, your architecture is, is interesting for sure, but claiming that you're 3% or whatever better than a ResNet, it's not actually true because you focused on your architecture and setting up the training recipe for that So that performs very well, but then the same care and attention wasn't spent on uh, the baselines. Yeah, I know this might briefly be a little maybe too detailed for some of our audience, but I'm, I'm really curious, as you did this work, Ross, the devil's in the details, you uncovered the details that matter. What are the details of the training setup, the details of the augmentation that matter the most for a ResNet to do really well? The key augmentations in the ResNet Strikes Back paper that uh, I think really make a difference. Rand Augment uh, is used uh, extensively or applied quite heavily. Um, mix Up and Cut Mix are also deployed. Now, I think bigger picture wise, it's, it's really interesting what you did there because, and I think it's part of a, a bigger trend actually in the AI research community. It's still a, a smaller trend maybe than most people wish it was is that Traditionally, people love to focus on one specific detail effectively of a neural net architecture or you know, data augmentation or something very specific because that's how research tends to move the fastest in many ways. You think about one specific new idea and you test that specific idea. But what you did here, you essentially brought together many of the ideas that were put forward independently in the past and showed how they can work together and together can actually do much better than anything that had been done before with ResNet architectures, um, putting it all the way to the state of the art, even though people thought that ResNets were not state of the art anymore. Now you show, actually, they're still state of the art. You just need to bring in all these ideas that have been in individual papers, bring it together, 
And now through your open source code base, everybody can just use it going forward, which is really phenomenal for, for progress as a community, I think. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I had the luxury of, I guess, time to a degree to be able to explore that combination without a conference deadline or paper quotas or targets to, to meet. Well, Ross, this was absolutely amazing. Thanks so much for being on the show. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. It was a, it was a really fun time. Uh, I think it's going to be really inspiring to a lot of people. I think your journey is just so unique. I think a lot of people want to get into AI and it's such a great example of you know how it's possible even when you're not necessarily already connected with leading organizations or universities from, from the beginning or ever. It's uh, absolutely amazing. Thank you.